Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Acts chapter 1, and let's... um... Let's pick up reading in, uh, in verse 1, and we'll, we'll go through verse 10. Actually, why don't we just go ahead and go through verse 11? That'd be great. All right. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the events or all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them. And gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized uh, with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee... They, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. This morning, I'd like to think about uh, this passage and talk about this passage. What, what can we do in our time? What can we do in our time? would be a, 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 an adequate title for what we want to talk about today. Every kid who grew up with the teaching of the rapture has probably had a moment like I had, I had several of these moments where uh, you've experienced that moment when you find yourself all alone and you don't know where your parents have gone and you don't know where anybody else is and you think, oh no, I missed the rapture. The Lord came back and, and I wasn't ready and he took my mom and what am I going to do now? And uh, that kind of fear uh, can settle in. And so the threat of Jesus' return, um, the threat... Not a weird way to say that, but uh, if you're not a if you're not a follower of Jesus, that can be very threatening. Uh, but that the idea of Jesus's return can serve as a healthy antidote to sin and complacency. For myself, um, it was the thing that brought me back into a serious consideration of of accepting Christ as my Lord. We all remember that story of the the master leaving his servant in charge of the household, and when he went away, uh, the servant thinks after a period of time, the master's not coming. You get some days behind you of the same thing, and you start to feel like it's always going to be this way, right? And um, he thought, maybe uh, the master's not coming home. And so uh, the servant, uh, in thinking the master's not going to come home, he begins to live an abusive and a party kind of lifestyle. Tells us that he beats the other servants, and Uh, He eats and drinks and gets drunk, and he's not expecting the master to return. Luke chapter 12, verse 46, uh, Jesus says, The master of that servant will come 
on a day when he least expects him and an hour he's not aware and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. What a, a sad story. What a, what a scary warning. And I think any kid who's grown up with that kind of teaching, you know that you want to be ready when Jesus comes. You want to be, uh, be ready at that moment. And you know that he is going to return. You see, a life lived for itself will not be ready for him uh, to return in the power of his kingdom because it's occupied with its own kingdom. And I think the reason that many people want to know the, the times and the seasons is because many of them, they want to live for themselves, but be ready, uh, be ready just in time for Jesus to return. Some, are, some live that way. And this is no way to go about loving God and living for him. We need to live for him in a different way. And God has not given us that convenience in our, uh, in our time for our own good. But people will go through all kinds of semantical things. If you say no one knows the day or the hour, people I've heard people go through all kinds of semantical games in order to convince me that they have an idea of when he's coming back. And uh, when it comes down to it, uh, it's, it's little uh, word games that they've played in order to make it fit what they think, and uh, they will agree that you can't know the day or the hour, but they'll, they'll say something like, you can know the times and the seasons. Well, um, either they're right or Jesus is right, because here he says you can't know the times or the season. You can't know the time or the date. The, the times or the dates in which the Father uh, will do these things. And, and so we have to ask the question, is Jesus right or are they right? And specifically here, I want to point out the disciples are not exactly talking about the return of Jesus here. I, w- I want you to understand that as we look at this passage in um, Acts chapter 1 and looking at verse 6, it says, uh, when they gathered around him, they gathered around Jesus, uh, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're not exactly asking Jesus when he's coming back. They're asking a different kind of question. The kind of question that does have to do with times and dates about when uh, Israel will be restored to its prominence. And so when we ask the question, what are these disciples really asking? Uh, we need to know that this has a history to it. It has something that, that goes way back. God's people had experienced their golden age under the, the leadership of David and Solomon. He brought them, those uh, two kings brought them into a time of their golden age and after their death, the nation um, was divided into two, and, and uh, they got in this cycle of serving idols and then having to be rescued by God, and, and it continued to spiral until finally God said to them during the time of the prophet Jeremiah that, that I will send judgment. I'm sending someone. I'm sending an army that's going to come and judge you and take you into exile, and that's exactly what happened um, God's people, I'm, I'm painting this with broad strokes. There's some more nuance to it, but with broad, broad strokes, God's people were taken into captivity, and after 70 years, many of them returned back to the land, and there they found themselves restored to the land, but not restored to their glory. You, you see the difference? Because what's going to happen after they return from Babylon is they're still, they're still going to be under the leadership of the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks are going to come along and defeat the Persians, and they're going to be under... The, the Greek rulership, and then uh, the Romans come in and they supplant that empire, and so they're under the Romans at the time of Jesus. And so while they're back from exile, they're really not fully back from exile. Do you understand? And so the question then becomes, you're the Messiah. We believe you're the Messiah. We believe you're the king. 
but are you going to now bring your kingdom? You died and you took care of the sin problem. Now can we be restored to the glory that we had previously? So the disciples think now that the kingdom is about to be restored to Israel. Israel's royal rule will be restored to Zion and Jerusalem. And they also think that Jesus is going to accomplish this. And so the disciples evidently assumed that once Jesus, the Messiah, had restored Zion, Israel would finally be supreme among the nations, even, even speak of Israel's ruler as ruling over the nations. And so the question then becomes, what's the timing of all of this? And I bet probably for all of us, we've kind of experienced that same kind of question. Okay, have you ever read through the Psalms and you've heard one of the psalmists say, how long, O Lord? Anybody ever had that as your heart cry? Or you're waiting for God to respond in terms of a, uh, an answer to prayer and you're, you're going through a difficulty and you're asking the question, how long, O Lord? This is the kind of thing, but imagine this on a national scale with every, every Israeli's heart crying out for the same thing. We want to see God's glory come and restore us to a place of greatness for God's namesake. And certainly there were others that wanted it restored for their own sake. But this was the question that was on the disciples' minds. And you remember that they even asked questions of personal significance to them, like, when you come in your kingdom, will you allow us to sit in places of power? Okay, so this affects them. When will you do these kinds of things? And Jesus responds in a way that's a little bit unclear. Right? Would you, would you admit that at least it's unclear regarding what they've just asked? It may be something different altogether. What's meant by his response? Because what he says is, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father is set by his own authority. But you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And to me, it seems like this doesn't exactly answer that question, does it? It pushes it off to the side. And so what's meant by Jesus' response? I think the first thing that it could mean, and I'm not buying into this. I'm just telling you some options here, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll tell you what I think it might mean. But the first thing is that uh, it could mean that the kingdom of Israel is not the focus at the moment. Okay, The kingdom of Israel is not the focus at this moment. Something else is in mind. Okay, That could be one thing. I don't necessarily think that's the thing. But, but second is that the kingdom would not be restored to Israel. The kingdom will not be restored to Israel. Okay? I think there's enough scriptures that suggest the kingdom will be restored that I don't think we can accept that option. Another option is that in Jesus answering this way, the kingdom would be restored to Israel, but in a, a different way than what they expected. Okay? The kingdom would be restored, but in a different way than what they expected. Or the other one is that the kingdom definitely would be restored to Israel, but right now... We're talking about something different. So I think that probably, in, in my understanding, the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel, but in a different way than what they expect. Like Jesus tw- chose 12, didn't he? 12 disciples. And you remember there's 12 tribes of Israel. I know this is maybe reading a little bit into the details here, but there's some good reasons for thinking this besides this, that what God has instituted in Jesus is not just restoring the nation of Israel, but in restoring or creating a global Israel, okay, in which we're grafted in, if you're Gentile, okay? You understand what I mean by that? That this is what I think is going on. I think the things that follow 
are relevant to the question, but they probably didn't get it at the moment, and they wouldn't get it until the Holy Spirit uh, came into their lives and revealed to them how he was going to accomplish this. Because Jesus uh, was not saying here, he was not saying a negation or a validation of what they said. They had to understand things a little bit differently. So today I want to talk about uh, God's work within the age in which we live. Okay, we can say with certainty that no one knows when the kingdom will be restored to Israel in this way. Okay, but but there are some things that we can know. We can know the one who knows the times. Okay, you might not you might not be able to know the times exactly. We get a sense for what the times are, but we may not know the exact time that Jesus is going to return. Um, but we can know the one who knows. <laughs> I don't know if that's comforting or not. If you're uh, the control person that like no. I need to have the information. We might have a problem. Okay, so here's uh, one option is that um, that we can just know and trust the one who knows the times. We can also know that the Spirit will empower us, and we can know uh, what we're supposed to do while we wait for the King. Okay, and so I'd, for li- I'd like for you to notice in our outline today a Trinitarian arrangement of what Jesus says. The question is, again, when will the kingdom be restored to Israel? And Jesus' response to that is, the first thing is, it's not for you to know the times or the dates, uh, which the Father has set by his own authority. So who's, who's the first person of the Trinity that's mentioned here? It's the Father, right? The Father has set by his own authority. See that? So the emphasis now is upon the sovereignty of the Father. And I want to mention that the point here is, the Father has authority over the times, okay? And I hope you'll see immediately this has broad and far-reaching implications for us today. It's not just those times. The Father has authority over these times. He has authority over all times. And He can set certain events in place just as they're supposed to be. It's not for you to know the times or the dates. So He mentions two terms here, and if you know a little bit about this, you can see that the terms, uh, which can mean uh, span of time, the first one he mentions is time, and, and this, uh, this is the word that we get chronology from, okay, chronology, chronos, it's, the, it's the, the succession of time, okay, it's not for you to know the times, like the spans of times, things that are as they, they go on. We don't know exactly uh, when those, that span of time will take place. And then he mentions another word, that's, which generally means the big moments, the big significant moments in times, the events. Okay, so we have the passing of time, but overlaying on top of that, we have events. Like, you know, when you've got your blank calendar set before you, that's like the passage, you can see the passage of time, or you can see it at least potentially through that symbol of your calendar. Is everybody with me? Okay, but then you begin to do something if you're like Janie or... Uh, some others, you, I just look at that calendar and I this makes no this makes no sense to me. Like my mind isn't working in that way. Tuesday and my mind is blue. So anyway, other people who are more normal write words in their calendars that are events that are overlapping the passage of time. It says when Tuesday comes, not Blues Day. Tuesday comes. We got to make sure I'm at this place to meet this person at this time. Okay. 
See? And so something is happening in terms of events. So when it says times and events, it could be using these in the in the dictionary definition of you're not going to know the, the exact passages of times and the increments that this takes, and you're also not going to know the exact events as they lead up to the moment of the restoration of the kingdom or whatever else is on God's timetable that we're looking at. We're not going to know those things. There's another option here, and that was a lot of words for an option we may reject. But the second one is that there's a figure of speech, and I don't know exactly how to say this, Hendiatus, I think maybe how it's said, something like that. And it's where it, it means uh, one from two. And this happens a lot, actually. It happens a lot in the way that we speak, where we put two terms together and connect them with a conjunction. Remember, conjunction, junction, what's your function? Connecting of words and phrases and clauses, all that it does. <laughs> I grew up during the era of schoolhouse rock. <laughs> Yeah, anybody else? <laughs> um, anyway, get, getting back to our figure of speech, these two words are connected by an and, and often what that can mean is that we, we use those two words really to mean one thing. Okay, so um, you might say of somebody, he's a fire and brimstone preacher. You don't mean that he preaches fire and he preaches brimstone. You mean that he's very serious. One thing out of the two. You see how that works? And another example of this would be something like, uh, you know, I love you with all my heart and soul. You're not really getting down there into the nitty-gritty and, and using your, your spiritual um, scalpel and dissecting heart and soul. You're talking about all of yourself. It's one out of the two. And so when we talk about times and seasons, we could go back to the dictionary definitions and understand it based on that. But probably what this means more generally is you're not going to know the times or events, times that lead up to this coming of the kingdom. So when he's talking about this, times and dates roughly mean the events that are coming up to that moment. And so as we talk about the return of the king too, I'm not trying to get into detailed end time charts. We're looking at this two-dimensional. We're looking at kind of an overview of this. And can I just uh, shorthand say the return of Jesus, we're talking about the return of the king, okay? Whatever your end time chart looks like, for all of them, the king comes back, right? He comes back, and he rules and reigns. And so we can all agree on that, even if you differ on when the rapture is or if there's a rapture at all, okay? So the times and dates roughly mean the things that are going to lead up to the, the passage of time and the events, all that encapsulated together, the, the way to the coming of the king. And what God says, what Jesus says to his disciples is it's not for you to know the times. You've been told that's not for you. Like somebody bakes cookies and they smell delicious and you go in to get one, those are not for you. It stings when that happens. Uh, this is saying it's not for us to know the times which the Father set by his own authority. The New English translation says, you are not permitted to know, which suggests a more intentional withholding of that information. You see, some people would rather uh, try to figure out those dates than be witnesses to Jesus. I've met people that they, I'm not talking about anyone here, so if you think it's you, you can <laughs> dismiss that. It might, it might fit, but... I'm not thinking of you, 
I've met some people who they're more interested in the speculative and obscure parts of the Bible than they are about the things that have been plainly revealed by God. You know what I mean? And I think that's a, a sad thing because God has revealed to us the things that he wants us to know. We, and it's not necessarily wrong to speculate. It's just not the point. And we can't consume our time with all of that because there have been things that have been plain re, plainly revealed. And maybe they do it because they're afraid of what's ahead. We'd like to know so we can psych ourselves up or get ourselves ready for that. We can never really be ready. And, and I want you to know this, too, that for every challenge in life, there's a grace that God gives for it. Okay? So if you're facing something, God can give you a grace for that moment. You might look at people and go, I don't know how they can get through it. Well, you don't know because you're not in that moment receiving the grace from God that enables it to happen. But you can have that for whatever you're going through and whatever you will go through, and God can take care of all of that. Some people want to know because they're afraid of what's ahead, and some, and, and some people maybe want to work out the date so that they can live for themselves to the last moment, the 11th hour. I know when you're a kid, that's what you're thinking. Like, when is Jesus coming back? Because I want to know, so when it's time, I'll be ready. Okay, can I be honest with you? As a kid, you're not your first priority most of the time is not thinking about, I want Jesus to come back right now. You're thinking about how you do want him to come back, but you want to accomplish all these things or experience all these things in life before that. Okay, so uh, we think about that. And then there may be some that they find the speculative more fascinating than what's been revealed by God. Uh, there was this book that came out, and you're going to know it if you've been in the church for a while. You probably already know where I'm going with this, don't you? 88 Reasons Why Jesus Could Come Back in 1988. Okay, we laugh now, but it was a big deal back then to a lot of people. And uh, this guy who wrote this book was a, an engineer for NASA and had a overdeveloped sense of end-time prophecy, I guess. The church as a whole, I have to tell you, was like fervent in uh, its end-time zeal at that period of time. I mean, we had the Soviet Union over here with missiles aimed at us, and we had missiles aimed at them, and we never knew when the, the whole thing was going to go up. And in the middle of that, there's an expectation Jesus is going to come back. And so a lot of people reason that, that this was going to be the times. And so this guy um, who wrote this book, you can look it up if you want to, he says this, if, uh, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. I don't know what town he was talking to, but I, I was thinking as I read that, humility, please, right? That's not the greatest attitude to have. I mean, even if, well, we have to question, I, I think there's a healthy skepticism of our own interpretation. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, we, we, should, we should cling to the Bible and say the Bible is true. But we should also be aware that we are fallible, finite beings that when we translate and, un- and interpret, that we don't always get it right. And we don't have the whole picture. We don't have the whole thing in our head as we grasp it. We're grasping for parts at a particular time. And things can get out of balance even when they're true. And so it's a challenge here, but he said that. And then he said, and if I were a king in this country, I could gamble my life with it. I could gamble with my life. I would... I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah, 1988. And so in his mind, it needed to match up with Rosh Hashanah, and and some people think that, that's fine. Uh, But that was sundown September 11th through September 13th, according to the author. Um, 
and I don't remember the tone of our church on this. I just remember our pastor talking about it. He may have taken a different tone, but I heard Jesus coming back in September, and I was a nervous 12-year-old <laughs> at the time, afraid of what was, what was going to take place in September 88. Uh, as you probably guessed, the book was wrong. And I don't know much about the author. He was wrong in that, but uh, I do know that my grandpa was a genuine believer. My grandpa Pete, he was a genuine believer, and he believed not in the eighty-eight theory, but he believed in uh, the fact that God promised, or he thought God promised him that Christ would return before his life was over. And he was more humble about it, and he didn't set a date, and he didn't write a book. Thank, thank goodness. Uh, but he died in nineteen ninety-five. And Jesus hadn't come back at that time. And I think knowing my grandpa, he was a jovial guy, he probably laughed when he saw Jesus. <laughs> Thinking, <laughs> I'm sorry, I got that wrong. <laughs> but I could see him doing that. Yeah. But I, I want to mention here that failures about predictions about when Christ will return or he'll, certain events will happen doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. It means that the person predicting it was wrong. Jesus is coming back, but he doesn't need us to tell him when. And Jesus here isn't commanding them not to think about his coming. He's telling them um, and us that some things are not given for us to know. When, when God says it's not for you to know, then let's trust him with the mystery. Okay? There's a, a great book written by Oz Guinness called God in the Dark, and he talks about different areas of faith. And one of the things he talks about is that there are moments when we're called to suspend judgment and walk with God in the dark until further revelation comes. And I think there's a healthiness to that. There there are the things that are revealed, and as we understand them with conviction, we need to lean upon them heavily. And there are things that are not revealed, and we need to, knowing what we do know about God, we need to walk with him through those things we don't know. And I think that's one of the challenges to living the Christian life, but it can be done. So he's not commanding them not to think about it. He's telling them and us some things are not given to know. And I think it would be dismissive of Jesus' word to become obsessed with figuring out the time of his return or the time of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And some say that's that's happened with the establishment of the Israeli state. That's fine. But instead, we're given to do something. This is not to be the focus of our life. We're given uh, the command to do something. And this means that we have to trust God with the unknown and start doing what we know the Father wants us to do. See, this is not just a New Testament thing where we have to trust God with those things. It's an Old Testament thing. Deuteronomy, if you want it, this is so easy to remember. It's Deuteronomy 29, 29. Okay? And it says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow the words of this law. Here's the point that he's making is that there are things out there that we can't know, and they're not perhaps even for us to know. And so what should we do with that? We trust God with the things that we know that are clear, and we do those things. Okay, Are, are you with me on that? So my, my challenge in this to us is that we do what we're, we know we're supposed to do. They are not; Those things are not for us to know, but they're for him to set. And this is the good news. We're not wandering around in the dark that is totally uh, devoid of God's presence and his influence uh, in any way. We're dealing with a mystery in which God is at work and sovereign. Okay? Remember, the point um, of this is that 
the, the father, he has power and authority over, the thi- over time and the things that we don't know. And he can set dates within that. And he can, he can cause events to happen within that. The times and dates have, have to be a matter of faith instead of feeling that we have to foresee the end. We should trust him who knows and decides the coming of the end. The coming of the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> so why don't we know? I, I would presume if I spoke of all the reasons that God doesn't tell us, because I don't know all the reasons, but maybe we can guess at a few of them. One of the reasons God may not tell us some things is that we wouldn't understand. Are you acceptable with that answer? Is that a, an acceptable answer? That <laughs> our brains firing on you know full throttle with the cooling fans on and everything going, we still can't match his wisdom. His ways are higher than our ways, and some things he does we don't understand. Maybe another reason is that we wouldn't live consistently until the event comes if we knew when it was going to be here. Like Some people would say, oh, he's coming in September. That means I've got now until the end of August to live for myself. And then he, when I'll get real serious about things at the end of August and get ready. Uh, he doesn't want us to live that way because this is about relationship. It's not, being a, it's not about going to a place, right? Relationship is for always. Maybe we would become obsessed and make it the only thing. And some people have already done that and proven that this happens, that the only thing they ever want to talk about, they don't want to talk about the crucifixion or the resurrection. They don't want to talk about the goodness of God. They don't want to talk about uh, people of God crossing the Red Sea. They want to talk about end-time prophecy, and that's it. And we can talk about end-time prophecy, but it's not the only thing, right? There's more. And I would suggest to you some of the some of those beautiful things that we come to know in Scripture are things that are not mysterious to us. They're revealed to us. Think about the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ. And then what if uh, we had that knowledge? One of the reasons he may not tell us is that we would trust in that knowledge rather than in God. And a fifth reason is that there may be other reasons that we don't know. <laughs> so let's just put under that, etc. Okay? So often what God would have us to be concerned with is different from what we might find ourselves to be concerned with. And so instead of um, knowing the times and seasons or knowing what things are going to take place leading up to that, uh, it is for us to trust the Father with those things. Why would Jesus tell us, it's not for you to know those things which the Father has set by his own authority? Well, the reason he's telling us those things uh, or telling us that is that he's telling us trust the Father who knows. The Father knows. We're not dealing with the God who doesn't know. We're not, we're not wandering around in the dark. We're not going aimlessly towards this. We have a God who foresees things, and I don't think everything that happens personally, I don't think everything that happens is the will of God. But I do think that there are times when God intervenes in these things sovereignly and says, this will happen now. Right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made him a woman, under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoptions. Perfect timing. The, the Greeks had established the language. The Romans had built the roads. The Israelis had established their nation in the crossroads of the world. All of those things came together in a moment of time. And crucifixion was the 
means of punishment during that time. And God had ordained Jesus would come right then. Okay, nothing was going to, the devil himself, he wasn't going to stand in the way of that. Jesus coming. You, you see what I'm saying? That there are things that or, are ordained by him, and we can trust him through those things. I think there's free will, but he determines when things will happen to accomplish his purpose. And so we may know the character of the times, but precision on the calendar, we don't know. The Father himself has that authority. And here authority means the right and power to control, command, or govern. The Father has that kind of authority, and the Father is determining the times and the seasons. Second thing here, quickly, and I spent a little more time on that one, but I want to point this out, and this is important to us. The Spirit has, the power, has power to give. He has power to give. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Notice that the first word here uh, is but, B-U-T, right? It's telling us not this, but that. Are you with me? What's the not this? Knowing the times and the seasons, knowing the times and dates. We don't get that. Instead, but you will receive power. You won't receive the knowledge, You'll receive the power. There is knowledge we receive. You know what I'm talking about, specifically the knowledge of the restoration of the kingdom. You won't receive that, but you will receive power. And that's, that's something different that he's telling us here. It's not information here that he's given so much as power. And uh, you want to know something about times. I won't give you that, but I will send you power through the Holy Spirit. Power here is um, a word that means potential for functioning in some way. Okay. Um, there's lots of stuff that we, we use our physical power for. Like, you know, when we're, we're living and we decide, you know what, it, this TV show would be better with potato chips. I don't really want to get up. But suddenly, that craving, and you exert your power and get up off the couch Right? It's a courageous thing to get up off the couch once in a while. But we exert our power and we, we do something in this physical world. And there's things that we have power to do, but there are limits to that. And so what I think Jesus is talking about here is he's given us a supernatural ability. He's given us capabilities that we don't have in and of ourselves. And sometimes he enhances natural abilities. I think this is important too. Like sometimes we'll say things like, I can't. I can't speak in front of people. Um, you, can, you can speak. And in front of people is only a subsection of doing that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And speaking and maybe thinking in a particular straight line can be difficult at times, but the Holy Spirit can supernaturally enhance our ability to talk. And so that's good news. I think it's one of the points of tongues is surrendering our language to the Lord. And so as he, he does that, it's, that's one facet of it. Another facet of it is when, it's call, when you're called upon to speak in a particular moment, you say, God, help me. This is terrifying. Um, the Holy Spirit can enable us to do that for his glory. So there's power, power functioning in some way. Okay. Another definition of that is potential to exert force in performing some function. And so one way uh, this may work itself out, I can't see a place in the Bible where it tells us the miracles are going to cease in our era. Okay? One way this may happen is as we pray for somebody. 
There's this guy back in, uh, I think it's the late 1800s in Germany, and he had a healing house. And we have our our picture of what healing evangelists are like. Like, they're, uh, can I just use a stereotype? And if your guy doesn't fit this, then forgive me. But sweaty and loud and up in front, you know, and moving a lot and saying things in a dynamic voice. Okay, I'm not being irreverent towards God. Yeah, okay, so I just want you to know that. But I wanted to draw the contrast because in this healing house, people just came in and they sat down around a table and they prayed quietly. And God would heal people. It wasn't like lots of songs and a big crowd working everybody up into a frenzy. It was quiet. And I'm not saying that's the right way. I'm saying our method sometimes we take that to be the only way that God can do things. And it's not in our methods that God does the supernatural. It's the power of God that supersedes our methods. Okay, Jesus sometimes spit in the ground and made mud. Sometimes he spit on his thumb and touched people's tongues and put it in their ears. And Other times he said a word. Sometimes he touched people. And miracles happen. Some, one time he was just walking along. Somebody touched the hem of his garment. And they were healed. So this power can be at work within us. See, when you, you try to do what Christ is asking us to do, we find that we can't minister to people effectively in our own ability. But he gives a supernatural ability to those who look to him and obey him. And I think the Spirit gave the disciples the power to speak with tongues, which is supernatural. Gave Peter the power to preach when he previously denied and wanted to run away. He gave the apostles and deacons power to perform miracles and heal the sick and enabled people to prophesy and to know things that God wanted them to know, which they didn't learn on their own. And he gave them power over demons. Those are not powers that we naturally have in ourselves, but God has. And the Holy Spirit is God. Everybody agree? Okay. And if the Holy Spirit's God, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit lives in every believer, God lives in you. The miracle-working power of God is resident in the Holy Spirit. Would you agree? And that means the miracle-working power of God is resident in you with the Holy Spirit. At any moment, he can use you. This is the power that comes down from on high. And there are times when we need to seek the Lord to fill us with his power. To the, the metaphor is to be baptized in his power, filled with his power, or full walking in fullness of his power. And, and that to me suggests, it's, it's a metaphor really, but it's suggesting to us that we're fully surrendered to him and that he's empowered us. He's come upon us and anointed us to do a work. And that's available to us today. So, so all of this was necessary since God called his people to preach the kingdom. The spirit is empowering today the people of God. Have you noticed anything here? So we've got the Father, we've got the Spirit. What's the normal order? It's usually Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? But that's not the way that Jesus is laying this out. I don't know exactly why, but I just want to point that out. So in case we're like, this isn't Trinitarian. It doesn't say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, but it does, it's not always in that order when it's brought up in Scripture. And here's one case of that because the next thing and the final thing, which we'll be glad for, is that the Lord has witnesses to send. The Lord has witnesses to sin. Look at verse 8, and it's the second part. After you will receive power, you will be my witnesses. You will be my 
witnesses. Who's talking there? It's Jesus, right? You'll be witnesses. If you have the King James, I think it says witnesses unto me. And you'll do it in all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. See, the power is for something. We don't know the times, but God's going to give us power. Father's taking care of the times. Uh, The Spirit empowers us, but the Lord is calling us to something along with him. Jesus himself is saying you'll be witnesses to me. If we're interested in just having emotional services, uh, well, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And I'm not saying that you wouldn't have an emotional service. The Holy Spirit can do that too. But the point is that he will, in, in this passage, that he will empower us to be witnesses to the world. Notice that Jesus says, again, you'll be my witnesses, which here means witnesses of who I am and what I've done. Okay? This, is the way, this is the way that the gospel goes, if you think about it. Witnesses are, are people who bear witness to a divine message, and it's more than just telling people what we've seen. It's applying that message for them. So the disciples didn't just go about going, the apostles, saying, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Jesus died on the cross and rose again. They did. But there was more to their message to that. I think of Paul um, when, it, when he was in Athens and he said, um, Jesus did this, he rose from the dead, and now God commands men and women everywhere to repent of their sins and turn away from evil and turn to him. See, there needs to be an application of that message to the person that this is what the cross and resurrection means, that the king, the king has come, the kingdom of God is here, and we must submit to his kingdom and turn to him. And we don't deserve it. We need it forgiven. Jesus took care of that. So the question is, are we going to remain rebels in God's world, or are we going to turn fully to him? We need to turn away from our sins and turn to the living God, putting faith in Jesus, who is his son. And so the way that the gospel has traveled around the world to cities and villages and jungles is that it was taken by people uh, who told what Christ has done. I was thinking as we were watching this video earlier, there's been a few people. If you've been to Peru from this church, would you lift a hand? Okay, Lift it high, hold it up, look in the back. There's some back there, some over here. Look at all these people who went to Peru and they came back alive and well. Thank you. Taking the gospel, preaching the gospel, surviving for Jesus, coming back to Alaska. Probably a little bit sunburned, but okay. But uh, this is the way the gospel travels around the world to cities, villages, jungles. Is it taken by people who told what Christ has done and what it meant for those people. Many people uh, went where it wasn't comfortable to go. And they show in their sacrifice the great worth of Jesus to whom whom they serve. I know it's not the only way uh, mission work is done for sincere believers to sacrificially go. There's other ways that mission work is done. We look down on those ways today. Um, Think about this, that there are those that uh, they forced people to come to believe the gospel or to go to church or receive an education. They force people at the hand of the sword to do those things. And there are cultures today that are established as Christian but not really Christian. And I think if you look at them, I think you'll find the difference between those places and where conversion was coerced by force or bought with rice in some places. There's, one, there's a mission term 
that refers to certain Christians as rice Christians. They're Christians as long as there's a giveaway. But the moment that's taken away, they don't serve God anymore. And that's sad, tragic, because Jesus has already done enough. Yes, we should feed the hungry and take care of them. But the call ultimately is come get soul food from Jesus. You know what you know what I mean by that? That there's more to this than just that. And I think you'll see the difference between those places where there's coercion and those places where genuine witnesses invited people to know Christ. There's depth. About Peru, if you haven't gone to the extent of the earth, there's an opportunity here to obey Jesus in a unique way. So I want you to think seriously about that. And I don't know if you saw this. It kind of brought a tear to my eye. But in one of the pictures, we saw Dale Sandstrom sitting there. I don't know if you saw that, but Dale was sitting on the second row or something like that, and he was in his upper 80s, if not in his 90s. I know the last time he went, he was over, uh, I think it was right around 90 or just past 90. He went to Peru and uh, came back. And I'm telling you that missions uh, is a great opportunity for everyone who hears the call of God. So I would encourage you to consider it heavily, and you won't come back the same, I promise that. The Lord is sending witnesses all over to tell about him, and I think there was... Uh, there's a way to look at this in which the kingdom is extended to the whole earth. If you think about what we're what they're asking earlier, they're asking, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What if what Jesus is doing is extending the kingdom? And he's creating the kingdom as he sends them out. Because consider what they're doing. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and earth is being given to me. What would you call a person with all authority within a particular realm? The king. He's coming as the king. And what does he say? He says, all authority on heaven and on earth. I have authority over the whole thing. has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Do you hear what he's doing? He's calling them to come under his reign. That's what this is. You see, what the disciples may have had in mind is a little sliver of land in the Middle East. And what God has in mind is bringing the whole world under his authority. He's the king of it all. And the knowledge of God will spread across this, nation, or across this globe like waters cover the sea. And the glory of God will accompany the knowledge of God. <laughs> it's beautiful. He says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. All authority. He's the king. Making disciples of nations. It's kingdom expansion. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. It's bringing people into the kingdom. And if we think this is a negative and like our mind goes to colonialism, maybe it's because every earthly kingdom is prone to corruption because of its fallenness. We've never, we've never seen a political kingdom so righteous as the one led by Jesus himself. Part of our message, though it's not, it, this is not always seen as a loving gesture, it won't be obvious to everyone, part of our message is that God's kingdom has come and we have to choose sides. Okay? Jesus died on the cross. It's the, it's, the, it's the owner's son coming into his vineyard, if you want a parable. He's coming into his vineyard, and the vineyard workers want to get rid of him. And so they beat him up, threaten all the messengers that come. Those are the prophets. 
And then the son himself finally comes. And they say, let us take him and kill him. And then we'll seize the vineyard for ourselves. It's a picture of how God sees what's going on in the world. Is that we're ready to kill God to have this for ourselves. And so when Jesus comes, the question is, are we going to respond and come into his kingdom and love him the way that he's called us to? Or are we going to do our own thing? So the invitation then is to choose sides. We may need to make it plain that being invited into the kingdom is not something we deserve. The invitation is extended because God has compassion on us who are reckless and doomed by our sin. By nature, we're children of wrath. We're enemies of God. We're ignorant of him. We're mostly blind to his own goodness. I was reading about, um, been reading uh, about this Latin philosopher, this Roman philosopher who they had slaves in their home. And um, one of the slaves was a clown that served his wife. And this guy was making fun of her a little bit because she started to say, why do you guys always put me in a dark room? And uh, what was found out was that she was going blind and she didn't know it. And I think our world, that's a good description of our world, is that sometimes we only see darkness and um, we're lost in our, our sin and we don't realize what God is trying to do, the goodness of God. Now, that's not to compare with that philosopher. He wasn't an overall good guy, but God has done something good for us. We were by nature children of wrath, enemies of God, ignorant of him, blind to his goodness. But Christ came to save us anyway. We can say, we can say with certainty, no one knows when the kingdom of Israel will be restored, but, but there are some things we can know, and that's what we've been talking about this morning. We can know the one who knows the times. And so today, as we wrap this up, um, there's going to be a few moments of prayer if you'd like to come. And you might be battling with the unknowns of life. Maybe there's a something you're going through right now and your your prayer has consistently been, how long, O oh Lord? Or, God, what is going on? Or, what what are you doing? And Have I done something wrong? Have I done something wrong isn't always the right question. You know, I mean, we ought to ask that. Lord, have I, have I sinned against you? Because sometimes the Lord allows tough times to come through our life as acts of discipline to bring us back to the right perspective, okay? But not always. Sometimes the things we go through, it's part of life where there may be a divine purpose in it. It might be an attack from the enemy. It may have nothing to do with whether you've done something right or wrong. It it may just be that we're in a fallen world. and, And maybe the thing that we need to ask in that moment is, God, how can I trust you better through this? And what glory can you receive from it? And how can I live for you in the midst of it? Remember, Peter wrote in his epistle, he said, let those who suffer according to the will of God continue to trust him and do right. Okay? We have to entrust ourselves to, to him and continue to do right, even if we don't understand what's going on. And so when the time comes, you might say, man, I'm going through some stuff right now. I don't understand it. It's scary, but I need God's help. And that would be a great way to respond to this. We can know that the Spirit will empower us. You're out on mission. You're out in the world. You're raising kids. You need to be spirit. Sorry if that sounds extra preachy, but parents need to be spirit-filled. My mom saved me from a lot of heartache because about the moment I'd get in trouble, I think the Holy Spirit had a direct line to her 
Maxine, you need to get Luke home. And uh, she would call up and say, I think it's time for you to come home. And I thought, how did she know we were getting ready to do something wicked? And so it's, t- it's time for you to come home. Uh, well, she was spirit-filled. She didn't catch all of the stuff. But she got a lot of it. And I, I thank the Lord. So you need to be spirit-filled. We need to be spirit-filled to minister to our world around us. And so would you ask the Lord today if you're, if you're wanting to be effective, God, would you empower me? You said you would. You, you, did, you said we may not get all the knowledge we would want, but you would give us the power that we need. Give us the power, Lord. And um, we can know what we're supposed to do as we wait for the king. We don't have to sit around twiddling our thumbs, waiting for Jesus. In fact, we shouldn't just sit around waiting for Jesus. We have work to do. Right? We know what we can do. We can't sit around speculating, drawing up end-time charts, and then erasing. If you want to do that in the after-hours times, extracurricular, go for it. But in terms of your everyday living, we have other stuff that it would be sad if we got our end-time chart right from honing it night after night and people died and went to hell. You know what I mean? So we need God's help to do that. So maybe you're saying, Lord, show me how I can fulfill this. You're going to use me. You're going to use me in my personality. Sometimes you're going to stretch me beyond what I'm comfortable with. But he always uses you. It's not like he checks you out of your body and puts somebody else's soul in there and says, okay, we're going to do this. No, it's him and you, and that's enough. Right? And God's enough. But he wants you to participate, and he's going to use you within your personality, and at times he'll stretch you beyond it. You know what I mean? So maybe you want to pray today. Lord, help me to know what to do. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.